0: Good morning, everyone. Happy Mother's Day to the mothers in the room. Uh, Thank you for joining us this morning. Uh, We have a lot of of kids here, which means we have a a lot of mothers. Uh, And you uh, deserve to be celebrated incredibly today. I hope that you will be. Thank you for all that you do. Uh, My wife, since she has become a mother, has completely blown me away. And it's like having a superpower. So thank you, uh, and happy Mother's Day. Before we get started, I've got a couple of quick announcements. I hope quick. Uh, So first things that I want to announce are some upcoming events that we're having. The uh, first one is Vacation Bible School, VBS. So that's something that uh, we host annually. I think this is actually going to be the third annual VBS that we're hosting. Uh, And that takes place June 4th through 6th. So it's pretty quick. We're going to kick off the summer with a vacation Bible school, June 4th through 6th. So a couple of things you can do. You can volunteer for VBS if you've aged out of VBS already, uh, which many of you have or should have. Uh, And you can, uh, yeah, send your kids as well. So it's for three years old, I believe, uh, up to 11 years old. It's a great thing. It's one of my favorite things that we do as a church because I think it's one of our best outreaches into the community. A lot of churches don't host VBS and it's a great thing for uh, kids in the summer. I was, uh, on Easter weekend, my wife and I were walking around our neighborhood and we happened upon a giant Easter egg hunt and it was another church that was like hosting a community Easter egg hunt and I was like, that's a good idea. And we, uh, so I was uh, talking with a couple of people and trying to poach some other good ideas that they had, like, so what else do you guys do for things? Um, And uh, one of the ladies that was there came up and she was like, you're from L2 Church? Our kids go to your VBS, we love it, thank you guys for doing that so much. Um, Which was really cool, uh, uh, because, you know, we have some good ideas too, and... No, it was, it, it's cool because uh, it shows that like this is a way that we can really serve the community uh, as a church. So uh, VBS coming up, June 4th through 6th. Second thing is Gotham applications are now open, uh, which is a sentence that I realize, if you don't know what that means, doesn't make any sense. So Gotham is... Uh, it, it's... Uh, Okay, so it's apparently difficult to describe. So Gotham is a nine-month Bible study program that we offer here at L2 Church. It's pretty high commitment. Um, it's, a, it's a lot of reading. It's a lot of time together. And I think that it's one of my favorite things that I've ever gotten to be a part of in my whole life. Um, through it, 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 it's a study that was developed out of Uh, Redeemer Presbyterian in New York City by um, the Protestant Pope, Tim Keller. Um, That's a nickname I'm trying to get to catch on. And he, uh, developed by Tim Keller and David Kim out of the Center for Faith and Work, and uh, basically it addresses this issue where churches do a great job of discipling people for church ministry, and one of our blind spots is we, we aren't so good at discipling people for your whole life, for where you spend most of your time, which is in your workplace, with uh, uh, sort of discovering how the redemption that Christ is working in the world is taking place and can be taking place through the whole of your life. And so, if you're in a place where it's like, my work feels meaningless, or if you're in a place where my work feels like uh, this thing that I'm enjoying for the first time ever, and yet it doesn't seem to have any bearing on my faith, I'd recommend Gotham for you. I've seen it just accelerate people's faith in such an incredible way. I really view Gotham as this pinch of leaven that we take each year where about seven to 12 people joined this group. They really commit to each other for nine months, and uh, that pinch of leaven, I view, is spreading through the whole church and really into our whole city by those lives that get transformed. I've gotten to teach it for the past two years. This upcoming year, uh, Jarrett Henson is going to be teaching it. Uh, He's right there, just held his hand up, but if you missed it, you missed it. So the... Plans are so the applications are live on online now. You can just go to our website. There's a big banner right up front, click on Gotham, as well as a big banner for VBS. So you can check those things out. All right, those are two upcoming announcements. Now let's move into some other announcements. Man, so last week we made a, a huge announcement for the history of our church. That is, we are going to sell the building and use the funds to fund two new ministry initiatives. One of them is the coaching and counseling that has been taking place as part of our ministry, uh, is going to be accelerated, and with a with a real focus on investing in um, prisons and uh, help for inmates. And the other side of that is we are going to use the funds to really plant a new church, which means that we're going to establish a new identity together, one that addresses the needs of pr- that our hope is addresses the needs of Denver where it is now so that we can take us take some space and reimagine together how can we best be on mission in our city as it is today as a church what are our next 25 years of ministry going to look like and so that's a huge announcement and with it has come all sorts of emotions a lot of positivity a lot of excitement as well as a deep sadness at a, a huge change and a great t- time of ministry that is coming to an end. And so with, all, with that said, we really want to be open, up front, from the front, saying that we want to be a part of processing through how we're all feeling moving, in, moving through this season of change. This isn't something that we can do as a vacuum or separated from each other. We're going to need each other to move through this. To come together as a church. So I hope that all the different things that we're experiencing can provide more of an opportunity for us to come together in a way that I think we're going to really need. In order to move from a space, we're going to need to really be identified with each other as a church that is on mission to serve the city. Because a lot of times you just end up at the same church you've been going to on Sunday mornings just by muscle memory You get in the car and all of a sudden you're here. And that's going to change. And so now is a time, this season that we're in, while we're still in the building and we're still developing together what it will mean to be this next phase of our church, what we're calling new church for now because we don't have a name. So I'll get to that soon. Uh, But let's take this as an opportunity to really come together and work through the difficulties of change and hope together for what we're headed to. If you want some more information on this and you wanna see the announcement, you can also go to our website, click on About, and there's a little tab that says Future of L2. Click on that and you can watch the video from last Sunday's announcement, as well as read a letter that we've sent to the congregation. So uh, we wanna keep you guys updated as far as what's developing. On, the, uh, on that front. This past week we established the new 501c3 for new church. Uh, it's under the name Colfax Church, which won't be our name because we aren't going to be here. Um, so, but we needed a name to just establish the entity, so that has happened. It's been filed. Um, but we've got about three to six months for the IRS to get back to us. Um, IRS there's a great organization to work with. So they, I'm sorry if you work for the IRS, your work is valuable, you should go take Gotham. And <laughs> <laughs> so uh, the 501c3 has been established. We have gotten together a group of people who are in the business of finding real estate that attend our church and put them together and really tasks them to be our tentacles out into the city so that we can start discovering where our next place to move from here may be. Um, And this week, our plan is to develop our naming strategy. I worked with a startup for a brief period of time, and uh, we thought we had this great name, and then we went through a great naming strategy with um, people who do that professionally, and we got a way better name. So like naming a kid, this is something we plan on living with for a long time. So we don't want to rush it. Um, And we want uh, you guys to be a part of it as best as we can. Now, I know what the creatives of you are thinking. is like, oh, we're going to vote on a name. We're going to end up with something terrible. Relax. We'll have some safeguards in place. So uh, that's what's coming up. If you have questions, if you wanna be involved, which I hope you do, we have basically converted our backstages into opportunities to come, ask questions, bring ideas, brainstorm together, and dream and pray for the next phase of our church. So backstage is the third Wednesday of each month at 6.30 here in the church, uh, downstairs where the kids meet, and uh, this Wednesday is the third Wednesday. So join us this Wednesday. That was a lot. So let's go ahead and get back into the text. Uh, if you don't mind, I'm gonna. Uh, would you pray with me so that we can refocus back in on the text? Father, I ask uh, that amidst all the logistics that are important, that you would focus our hearts uh, in on your word for the remainder of our time together, that we might see uh, yourself revealed in it, and that our idea of the kingdom. Uh, might be clarified, Lord, that we might see you more accurately uh, and therefore w- worship you more truthfully. We lift this up in Jesus name. Amen. So this week, as in last week, we are looking at two parables, two parables that are almost identical. One, a person is, uh, happens upon a field with treasure in it and then covers up the treasure and then goes and sells all that he has to come back and buy, that field. Secondly, a person who's in search of fine pearls, a a pearl merchant, uh, discovers a pearl that is of such great value that he goes and he sells all that he has to find the, uh, to be able to buy the pearl. Two uh, parables that are so similar, both showing us a unique angle on this idea of the value of the kingdom of heaven. What would we do? What would we give up? if we saw the kingdom of heaven in its truest value. And the answer that these parables provide us with is that we would live in a joyful sacrifice. We would joyfully sacrifice all that we had in order to attain the kingdom of heaven if we saw it in its truest value. So what we're going to look at this morning is how the kingdom of heaven really operates in our normal sense of value, the way that we normally value things is the way that we ought to be valuing the kingdom of heaven. We'll bring some more clarity to that. And then we're going to see an example from the Bible of a misperception of value, and then we're going to see an example of a true perception of value. So, the normal response to value. I'll go ahead and read the parables again. 13, Matthew 13, 44 to 46. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. These are nearly identical, which means the differences kind of stand out. And the one difference I want us to see off the bat and a kind of a category that I hope you'll sort of imagine yourself in terms of where you fall or where you have fallen is that the, uh, the person who discovers the treasure in the field was not searching. This was something that in the course of his life he simply happened upon. And when he discovered it, he realizes this is of such great value that it's worth getting rid of everything that I've had, everything that I've worked to acquire previously, can be completely displaced by this, and I'll come out on top. Now, the person uh, who finds the pearl, they are living with a disposition of being in search of something. He's looking for pearls, And he's constantly seeking one that will actually be meaningful, that will actually be able to bring a sense of value, and he finds it. These two different dispositions. One, not in search of something, perhaps because they think they have found what they needed. The other, looking for something. And yet, both come to the same conclusion when they encounter the treasure or the pearl. Both have the same response. They sell everything that they had in order to attain it. See, we approach the kingdom of heaven in that same way. Some are searching, perhaps not for the kingdom of heaven, likely not for the kingdom of heaven, but for some sort of meaning in life. And others, not so much, because they think that they've found it, or because they think that such a search would be so futile. And yet, when you happen upon the kingdom of heaven you realize that this is of such value that you would give up everything you had previously had or thought in order to attain it. There's no cost too high. Each individual makes the same sacrifice and the uh, parable of the treasure says that in his joy he goes and sells all that he has. You see, the way that they make the exchange, the way that he gets rid of Everything that he had acquired previously is in joy. Which brings to the front a clear picture of what Christian sacrifice really is. How Christian sacrifice is so unique in the world. Because it is a sacrifice that is complete and ultimate. Because they give everything and yet it is a sacrifice that is done in joy because they realize that what they are able to gain is of such value that even in losing everything, they'll still come out on top. So there's this nuance to Christian sacrifice that we often neglect, which is that there's this part of it, part of our self-sacrifice that is actually grounded in our normal self-interests. Which those seem this seems like a paradox because those things seem directly opposed to each other. Self-sacrifice is laying down your own self-interest. It's disregarding your own self-interest. And yet To understand these parables properly, we need to understand how Christianity works with our built-in, created, good self-interest. And one of the best helps in that regard uh, is a theologian named Jonathan Edwards, who you probably read in English class uh, for his sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Um, uh, This excerpt is not from that. So, He says, it is not a thing contrary to Christianity that a man should love himself or, which is the same thing, should love his own happiness. It's not contrary to Christianity to love yourself or love your own happiness. If Christianity did indeed tend to destroy a man's love to himself and to his own happiness, it would therein tend to destroy the very spirit of humanity. But the very announcement of the gospel as a system of peace on earth and goodwill toward men shows that it is not only not destructive of humanity— but in the highest degree, promotive of its spirit. It is promotive. It's not a word we use often. It is promotive of the the spirit of a human to be incentivized by the good promises of the gospel. It is why the gospel is described to us in terms of good news. It's drawing on this innate quality in ourselves that we love our own happiness. And if we love our own happiness, then that means we will tend towards the things which we think will bring us the most happiness. So then where is the issue? You see... What happens is oftentimes we think of self-interest and we try and create worldviews that are completely reducible to just pursuing our own self-interest. So we try and imagine that all of ethics is just sort of like the playing out of norms of us pursuing our own self-interest. And I think that one of the most influential philosophies of the 20th century in the United States was this idea that there is a moral ought to pursuing your own self-interest. And there's a way that this gets out of whack that I want us to explore. So uh, the kingdom, uh, what I wanna demonstrate is that the kingdom, although uh, plays off this normal pursuit of our self-interest, is not reducible to just pursuing our own self-interest. So uh, Anne or Ayn Rand, anyone know? Ein, Ein. Ein. <laughs> Ayn Rand. Um, so uh, Ayn Rand pr- uh, was a proponent of this. She's an, an author. She wrote uh, Atlas Shrugged, Fountainhead, Anthem. Um, if you donated to Ron Paul, you know who she is. <laughs> um, so uh, she offers uh, this philosophy that she developed called objectivism. And she says this. She sums up objectivism this way. It is the concept of man as a heroic being with his own happiness as the moral purpose of his life. His own happiness as the moral purpose of his life. With productive achievement as his noblest activity and reason as his only absolute Those factors, I feel like, sum up a lot of what we just normally take for granted in the United States. This is a philosophy that was not taken seriously by academia. But that was foolish on academia's part because this is what I think has been most ingrained in our way of thinking in the United States the pursuit of the individual's happiness is our one moral ought. Our guide for that, our only absolute guide for that is not God, it's just our reason. And the noblest expression of that is our own high achievement. If that's not a summation of American culture, then I'm not sure what is. See, that's why when The men who are our heroic beings die like Steve Jobs. We go into like a national mourning because they're the archetypes. The CEO is the archetype for the greatest expression of our humanity. And yet we see that there's ways in which this type of culture can be so bad and can go so wrong in the Ubers and the Weinsteins and the Enrons of the world. There's a danger to happiness being the moral purpose of our lives. And so how do we hold these two things together? How do we hold together this danger of our happiness being the moral purpose of our lives and yet this quality in ourselves which is that it's it's a good thing, it's a good part of our created humanity that we love our own happiness? How does this very same thing that draws us towards the kingdom often draw us away from it? How do we rectify a view like Ayn Rand's, which I will now forever know how to say, with Jesus saying in Luke 9.23, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me if happiness is the moral purpose of my life, then that is actually wrong to do. That type of self-denial would actually be wrong. And we see that played out in our culture. Because our stories are not stories of, I sacrifice, even, even things that I thought were core to me, I I let them not be expressed because I felt like it would be better for the conditions that we were in. Those aren't the stories that we celebrate. (laughs) We celebrate the stories of I actualized my happiness in the world, and then the world conformed around me. The magic was in me all along. It's the end of every Disney movie. (laughs) Because those are our narratives, that's what we celebrate. So, Jesus' call to take up our cross daily in this parable, we see the nuance of Christian sacrifice, which is that it is a call to sacrifice all. And yet, when we see what we are sacrificing for, we realize that it is no sacrifice at all. Because what we gain is that worth it? It is actually a loving of our own happiness to pursue the kingdom of heaven. So the difference is not one of should we be self-interested or should we be selfless? The question is rather, what should the self be interested in? What is the object of our self-interest And do we believe, have we seen in the kingdom something that is so glorious and so amazing that we would be willing to joyfully give up all we'd had in order to share in that thing? Would it be following this innate self-interest to do so? So, With those sort of categories established, I want to look at two examples of what the self can be interested in. The first is a misperception of the value of the kingdom, and the second is a proper perception of the value of the kingdom. So, misperception of value. Matthew 19, 16 through 19. And behold, a man came up to him, saying, Teacher, him is Jesus. "'A man came up to him, saying, "'Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? "'And he said to him, "'Why do you ask me about what is good? "'There is only one who is good. "'If you would enter life, keep the commandments.' "'He said to him, "'Which ones?' "'And Jesus said, "'You shall not murder, "'you shall not commit adultery, "'you shall not steal, "'you shall not bear false witness, "'honor your father and mother, "'and you shall love your neighbor as yourself.' So let's start to break down this interaction. Jesus is is, um, approached by who we later found out is a rich young man. And the rich young man's question is, how do I inherit eternal life? And he asks it in a particular way. What good deed must I do to inherit eternal life? What is the sacrifice that I would need to make or what's the thing that I need to show is in me that will then acquire for me the kingdom of heaven? And then what's sort of implicit in that question, he he makes explicit when uh, Jesus asked him to clarify. So, uh, or excuse me, when he asked Jesus to clarify. So Jesus says, well, you just need to keep the commandments. Keep the commandments and then you'll inherit eternal life. And then he says, okay, which ones... (laughs) Which means, you know what he's searching for is, what, what's the least I can do? What's like the minimum viable product that I can provide in order to attain the kingdom of heaven? I mean, look how completely opposite this is. From the approach that we see for the man who finds the treasure in the field, or the man who finds the pearl of great value, it's just immediately I'll give up it all, and then in this man's question is what's the least that I can do? And so Jesus then uh, he he lists the he sort of follows him down the path. Which ones? Well, I'll just start listing the Ten Commandments and the principle that upholds them. Uh, so. Uh, Well, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't bear false witness, honor your father and mother, love your neighbor as yourself. You see, it's love your neighbor as yourself that all of the others hang on. All of those others would be demonstrated if he simply upheld the last one of loving his neighbor as himself. The golden rule, probably Jesus' most famous teaching. Something you can probably find in a quote on Facebook with like a picture of Abraham Lincoln. But Jesus said it. <laughs> so, what is it? Here's an interesting thing that I want us to see in the Golden Rule. That the Golden Rule is not... The Golden Rule works together with this idea that we're developing of Christian self-interest. It assumes that you want to treat yourself positively, that you have this inherent love for your own happiness. And then it says, expand that thing. Take that principle in yourself that you know is already there and flip it around and demonstrate it towards others. Treat others as, excuse me, love your neighbor as yourself. You do love yourself. Love your neighbors likewise. So as the conversation continues, this rich young man uh, gives Jesus the worst possible answer to the question of how is the commandment keeping going? Uh, When Jesus asks you which commandments you've been keeping, uh, don't respond with all of them. You haven't been. That's not... Jesus is like, then what did I, like, so what am I atoning for here? What did, I, what did I come here? So Matthew 19, 20 through 22, the young man said to him, All these I have kept. What do I still lack? Now Jesus is about to put his finger on the misperception of value in this rich young man's life. Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, Go sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. You see, Jesus provides him with an explicit opportunity to respond in the exact way that he describes in these two parables. Says, go sell everything that you have and give to the poor, and then come follow me. Then, then you'll get the kingdom. You'll discover this treasure in heaven. And because he misperceives value so completely, because he doesn't really think he's discovered a treasure. Because he doesn't really think he's discovered something that will actually move towards his happiness, that would actually be a benefit to him. Because he sees no real value in the kingdom, he doesn't make the exchange. Instead, he walks away sorrowful. You know, the request of Jesus fits perfectly with the golden rule. Because if we just walk through like, the steps of imagination that the golden rule re- requires, how is this man loving himself? How has he loved himself? How has he pursued his own happiness? He's gathered up great possessions for himself. And then Jesus says, love others in the same way. Bring the poor into this wealth that you enjoy. And you'll have a treasure that far surpasses this. But he misperceives his value. Jonathan Edwards, once again, brings some more light into how our self-interest gets misused. He says, A man's love to his own happiness may be inordinate in placing that happiness in things that are confined to himself. In this case, the error is not so much in the degree of his love to himself as it is in the channel in which it flows. Let me put my finger there. This is not so much an issue with him loving himself too much. That's not the issue. The issue is in which, is in the way in which he is loving himself. What is the means that he is using to love himself? Continue, it is not in the degree in which he loves his own happiness, but in his placing his happiness where he ought not, and in limiting and confining his love in their love to their own happiness, place that happiness in good things that are confined or limited to themselves, to the exclusion of others. And this is selfishness. See, our selfishness is when our self-love becomes so limited that it becomes inordinate. It is not wrong that we desire our own happiness, but it becomes wrong in the ways that we see it. The issue is a misperception of the value of a truly great thing. And instead, we hope for a small thing that just is confined and turns in on ourselves. So let's move on then to a true perception of value. So this is, I think, one of, one of like my favorite texts in Scripture And uh, it's Paul discussing how he understands the value of the kingdom and how it relates to his life, the Apostle Paul. He writes in Philippians 3, 7 to 8, he says, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Why does he count everything else in his life as loss? Because he sees the value correctly. It is not this denial of his own happiness. He sees where that happiness could actually come from. He perceives that the the worth of Christ is far surpassing anything that he could have been pursuing his happiness in. That the holding on of these possessions is is so inferior to getting rid of them, that way they might free him up to be able to move for the kingdom, to be able to share in the suffering of Christ that he might know God. See, he perceives this value correctly. If we put this back into the metaphor or the the parables that we've seen from Jesus, we'd see that any one possession that the merchant would have refused to part with, that would have then kept him from being able to purchase the pearl what incredible loss that one possession would amount to. And see, Paul sees it that way. So he's able to count everything as loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ as his Lord. What is this amazing thing that Paul has seen in the kingdom? What is it that compels a heart to sacrifice everything and do so joyfully? What a free person that must be. What have they seen? Well, Paul continues on. He says in Philippians 3 9 through 11, he continues and he describes this thing that if we see, then we'll be able to see a value. that is worth giving up everything to attain. He says, And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. It says, uh, uh, imagine this, just slow down and imagine this for a second. Imagine you're a merchant, a merchant traveler, and you're wandering through the desert. Might as well make it cool and someone approaches you and they say, I have an opportunity for you. You could know God. Now, if you were a smart person, you'd think, you know, in many ways that's not good news. Because for me to know God as I am is honestly just frightening. I'm a created thing, one of his created things. And I haven't acted that way. I've misperceived value all over the place. I have treated myself as though I were the only ends worth living for. An opportunity to know God? I think I should pass. You know, they'd they'd have to sweeten the deal. But look at what Paul describes. Imagine being able to know God, and you could could be found in Christ. And you wouldn't meet him with your own righteousness. You wouldn't come face to face with God, clothed in the righteousness that you have made for yourself. Because that would just be horrifying. Horrifying. That would just mean coming in contact with a justice that would crush you. Instead, you would be clothed in a righteousness which comes through faith in Christ. A righteousness clothed, meeting God clothed in a righteousness that is from God himself. Imagine that type of opportunity. Imagine being able to meet with the creator, clothed in a righteousness that he's given you, to enjoy his presence, to see the kingdom that he is ushering into the world, to worship him rightly and truly as your king, as your creator, as your God, clothed in the very righteousness that he's given you. If you wouldn't, any, anything that would keep you from that What an incredible loss. When you perceive this correctly, when you correctly perceive the value, when you are a normal person, you want to act in line with your self interest, if you love your happiness, then you would say, I would give up anything for that. So, what are the ways that you love yourself? Do you do it with money? Then consider how could you give that up to pursue the kingdom? Do you love yourself with your work? Then consider how could that be sacrificed joyfully? That it might be in pursuit of the kingdom? Do you love yourself with relationships or the preservation of your reputation? How could that be laid down in pursuit of the kingdom? See, we need to imagine these components of our lives, these channels that our happiness runs through. When we see those as such loss compared to this value that we have offered to us in the kingdom. The good news of the kingdom is that the value is that incredible. The way that it is offered to us is completely free which does something to increase its value, I think, for your heart. But you must consider, what are those things that you won't let go of? How are you misunderstanding your happiness? What is causing you to walk away maintaining the thing that you wanted, and yet you're walking away sorrowful? These parables provide an opportunity for us to step back and ask ourselves, what do I really want? If you see the kingdom honestly, and you act in normal self-interest, I think you will see that you want that. Okay, so with that, let's uh, take some questions. Probably not many, because it was pretty long. Seems many que- questions, Are so disgusted by their own sin that they hate themselves. Is it possible then that our churches are not growing because we have no self-love to turn toward others? So this is so like I I poked at something that we need to provide a lot of nuance around because the it it is not as though we just take a self-love and we turn it towards others. We've, we find that in loving others, there is an inherent incredible joy in that. That's why God has called us to do it. We're built to do that sort of thing. So in loving others, there's this simultaneous loving of ourselves. And uh, as far as, is that a reason why the church isn't growing? I think the reason why the church isn't growing is because people don't really think they've found something valuable. People haven't really been affected by the gospel in such a way where they realize that the opportunity that the gospel presents is is this offer of Christ's righteousness that can be yours, that God is no longer counting man's sins against them and that he is calling to him a people for himself. And people haven't been set free by that and so they haven't discovered the true value that exists in the kingdom and so they don't think they have anything to share and so the, uh, our churches don't grow because we haven't heard and understood the grace of God and truth. When we do that, we, we encounter this Christ who if we can know him, will just give up Everything and will say crazy things like Paul says. Like, I want to know everything about him. I want to share in his sufferings. Because when I share in his sufferings, I realize the depth of suffering that he's shown me, and I realize that the depth of love that God has towards me far surpasses what I had previously expected, and therefore I'm willing to sacrifice far more than I previously was. That's why I think our churches aren't growing. It's partially an understanding of this, but I think it's mostly we haven't seen the treasure. Okay, next. Sweet. Okay, let's take communion and pray. Holy Father, I pray that you, during this time of communion, would give us an opportunity to reflect on what it is that our hearts treasure. And to see, is it your broken body represented by the bread? Is it your poured out blood represented by the wine? Father, help us meditate through those things and show us what we ought to be counting as loss that is keeping us from you. Where is, what are the wrong channels that our love towards our own happiness are flowing in And how can you show us, Lord, would your spirit move that we might see a kingdom that is so glorious that to not give up everything for it would just feel foolish, that's so glorious that it's actually irresistible? Father, I pray that you would open our eyes to see that. In Jesus' name, amen. You can find more audio as well as study questions and sermon notes at l2church.com. If you have any comments or questions, feel free to shoot us a message through the contact form on our website. Thanks for listening.